So, we have been studying the letter to the Galatians since the fall, and honestly, I've got more comments about last week's uh, message about Christian freedom, which is kind of, you know, encouraging and discouraging at the same time. Um, it kind of proves my point, I wish it didn't, that most people have never heard a sermon on Christian freedom, even though the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. He uses it as a synonym, as a summary, if you will, for what Jesus came to do. And yet most people that have been raised in the church have never heard a sermon on Christian freedom, even though the Apostle Paul says, it, you basically could say, this is what Jesus came to do. That's a little discouraging. Uh, I think for most people, Christianity is about anything but freedom. And most people's experience of Christianity has not been about freedom. Add to that that most people's view of freedom can't be reconciled with Christianity because freedom in our world at this point in time is seen as being free to do what you want, when you want. And so it raises the question, a reasonable objection. How can we be free if someone or some religion insists on telling us how to live or to vote or to think? I have a friend, uh, Steve Garber, brilliant thinker, who says really where the rubber meets the road for young people today is can God tell you what to do with your body? If you want to get a good sense of how deeply Christianity has penetrated into someone's life, Ask them if God has a right to tell them what they can do with their body. That doesn't seem like freedom, does it? And yet here in this passage, as we're going to read a little farther into Galatians chapter 5, we're going to read the passage that we went over last week, and then we're going to add to it a little farther down into chapter 5. Paul says it's for freedom that you've been set free. And then he says, don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. As a matter of fact, use your freedom to love. Because freedom, as the Bible understands it, is not just freedom from, it's also freedom to. And our culture has a, a pretty small view of freedom, unfortunately. And a lot of Christians have almost no view of freedom. So we need to hear what God has to say. Let's look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. I'm using the NIV translation, but you can follow whatever translation you want. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. 
Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you, meaning God. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. It's a nice way of saying, cut it off. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. It's a lot there. Let's pray that God will help us as we dig into this. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We feel like we're stepping in, overhearing a conversation that really matters. We pray, Lord, that you'd open our eyes and open our hearts and our minds to understand why. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Paul seems pretty fired up about this, doesn't he? He does. Freedom is a big deal. And what's happened is that some false teachers have come and have lied to the Galatians about what a relationship with God is like and how you live in a relationship with God. And Paul's upset about it. Because whenever you distort the good news, or you say distort the gospel, you end up distorting God's character. Because the true gospel is a reflection of God and his character. So this matters. Theology matters. As Martin Luther was fond of saying, bad theology is a cruel taskmaster. And there's a lot of people who've grown up with bad theology. Some of them still call themselves Christians. Some of them don't want to have anything to do with Christianity. So this stuff matters. What is the, the Christian idea of freedom? Well, notice in verse 1, it starts with a rescue. Now, Jesus said this in John chapter 8. He said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And Paul says it here in verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. We're the passive ones in that. Christianity begins with a rescue. If you go all the way back to chapter 1, Paul described the gospel this way, that he's rescued us. That's the beginning of Christian freedom. Christianity's teaching about freedom begins with this point. Freedom is something that happens to us. It's not natural to us. Of course, our culture thinks the other way, but I think really our culture's idea of freedom is too small because the culture wants to say, and a lot of people here maybe even have this idea, that freedom only comes when you can do what you want. And thus, there can only be absolute freedom if God doesn't tell you 
how to live because God is going to tell you sometimes to do things that you don't want to do. So how can you have real freedom? One of my favorite quotes illustrating this is by Alanis Morissette. Now I know, you know, she probably, you know, came out what, when you were, you know, not even born yet. But I will tell you, for Belmont students, her record was really important because it was, it was one of the times that she just said what was on her mind the anger, the passion in her music was visceral. It was powerful. She said this in Rolling Stone magazine, Christianity taught me to view God as vengeful and judgmental. Over the last few years, though, I've realized that God is compassionate and has no preference over how we live our lives. I think that is communicated through the fact that we're given free will. There are definite universal laws, the laws of consequence and cause and effect, but I don't think God prefers one choice over the other. He or she or it notes rather than judges. Once I realized that, it immediately made me feel more responsible for my own life. If God doesn't judge us, all of a sudden it puts the onus on us humans. We're the creative force. We're creating what our world looks like right now and will look like down the road. Now, there's parts of this that I resonate with. A lot of it makes me sad. Even the way she starts, Christianity taught me that God is vengeful and judgmental. And I suspect she's not the only one that would say that, even in this room tonight or among your friends that aren't in this room tonight. But maybe you wish they were. They would say, Christianity has taught me that God is vengeful and judgmental. But as it goes on, I don't know about you, but it seems like slavery. What she describes as freedom seems rather oppressive to me. Because I can't handle what she proclaims as liberation. I've heard it said one time, you know, when you're in college and you have to work a summer job, man, sometimes it's so boring because you're so much more gifted. You have so much more skills than the summer jobs that you tend to get, right? But let me tell you, if you have to go do a job every day that you know you can't possibly do, that's hell. And what she's proclaiming is freedom sounds like hell to me. I'm the creative force. The onus is on us to create the world. Well, we haven't done a very good job of that. Now, I'm not against human responsibility and caring for the way you live. But thinking that it's all upon you is not freedom. And all I can tell you in 22 years of working with college students, the most insecure students I know are the ones whose parents didn't seem to care how they lived. He, she, or it notes rather than judges, you know if somebody doesn't give a damn about how you live that they don't care about you very much, right? So what seems like freedom is in the end so empty. It's so empty. We also have this problem. So many of us have been raised, told that we can do whatever we want and do whatever we want as long as we put our mind to it. Now, I hope you know by now this is a complete lie. Because there's a lot of people in this room, I don't care 
how much you try, how much you work on it, you can't sing well, you can't <laughs> dunk a basketball. There are all kinds of things you can't do, right? But this view of freedom, beyond being ridiculous, is paralyzing. Because what I see as I talk to people is the infinite variety of options or believing that every possibility is open to you is completely paralyzing. It's not a blessing. It's a curse. And rather than taking into account your gifts, God's call to love others, and your limits, you become enslaved to this be-all-you-can-be and never rest with being just a normal human being. That's not helpful either. Some of the greatest slaveries in your life and in my life come from, not, for, for basically from refusing to embrace finiteness and thinking that if I just tried a little harder, worked a little longer, figured it out a little more cleverly, that everything would be great in my life. And that misplaced hope that if you just figured it out and did it a little better, a little more triumphantly, that everything would be fine is a great slave regenerator in your life. Because you can't. So often what we think brings freedom eventually brings slavery. Now, my wife told me I couldn't use this song because it's too old, but it's such a good song, I'm going to use it anyway. <laughs> Do you know the Eagles? You know the Eagles? They're back together again. They're doing their last tour. Vince Gill is in the band now, and I'm so excited to see them. Um, you guys know Vince Gill, right? So if you don't know the Eagles, you know Vince Gill. Um, well, they have this, this old classic song called Lion Eyes. Anybody know that song? Lion, see, some of you guys know this. Um, has this great line. It says, city girls just seem to find out early how to open doors with just a smile. A rich old man, and she won't have to worry. She'll dress up all in lace and go in style. Now, it's a profoundly sad song. Uh, I won't give it away because it's one of those songs that when you understand the last verse, it like you have to go back and read the whole song again and be like, oh, it, it means even more. So I'm not going to give it away. But I will say that it's a song about how that freedom is no longer freedom. In other words, if your trust is in beauty, beauty can bring freedom. Let's just be frank. Beauty, like talent, can let you get away with things. But what happens when beauty stops, starts to fade? And you have to put more and more effort into looking good. And more and more worry into see, people seeing that you're not as beautiful as you once were. Now this path to freedom, this thing that promised freedom, is bringing slavery. And I don't care what it is that you put your hope in, whether it's your talent, whether it's your grades, relationships, as soon as you count on them for freedom, they end up becoming the source of slavery. All of the paths to freedom that we chase after inevitably lead to more and deeper bondage. And I don't care whether it's religious or irreligious schemes, they all do it. And that's why Paul says to these people, they're pursuing or at least being tempted to pursue a religious scheme. 
circumcision. I'm going to explain why that matters so much here in a minute. But he says, don't let yourself be enslaved again. So what he's saying is, before you understood and knew the God of the Bible, you were enslaved. In your paganism, in your irreligion, you were enslaved. But now, if you would sort of do this religious stuff that these false teachers are teaching you about, you would be enslaved again. You may think that it's completely opposite. To be super spiritual is the opposite of being like a complete heathen. But Paul says they're both slavery. They're both slavery. Because they're both ways of rejecting salvation by grace. See, what Paul says here is accepting circumcision is rejecting salvation by grace. And he says, once you go that way, if you take on circumcision, then you're obligated to obey the whole law. Why does he say that? Well, what he's saying is, if you're going to trust in something you do, like circumcision, it's something you can do to make yourself more presentable to God. If you do that, then you basically exchanged the way you're relating to God. You've moved away from trusting in what he does to trusting in something you can do. And once you go down that path, Paul says, you might as well go all the way and just cut it off. That's what he says. If you want to go that path, then you need to be consistent. You can't mix in a little bit of making yourself beautiful to God with trusting in his grace. It's either or. And when you came to understand the gospel, Paul reminds these Galatians in chapter 4, your life was full of joy and sacrificial love. But now that you've begun to believe that it's up to you to make God like you, now you're biting and devouring one another. Because you've moved away from the only thing that can bring security. Because the only thing that can bring security is something that you didn't work for. If your understanding of God's love is me plus anything, let's call it X, equals God's smile, well then God's smile is always in doubt. Because you're a constant variable, right? And of course, so is the thing you're trusting in. If your understanding is me plus anything equals God's smile, then God's smile is always in jeopardy. And of course, you'll sense it. And if anybody gets close to threatening the thing you're trusting in, you'll lash out at them. Because how can you not? It's what, you're, it's what you're standing on. If it's your ability to be a good friend, and then through no fault of your own, somebody stabs you in the back, it hurts more if that's what you're trusting in. Right? It's, it's one thing to not be able to, to pass an audition. It's another thing if you think it's your reason for being. Right? And it affects the way you forgive people, too. Because if somebody undercuts you in a way that exposes how vulnerable you are because you're trusting in this thing that they've threatened, oh man, it's so hard to forgive. Now Paul actually encourages us to think about, to take stock of our life. In verse 7 he says, you are running a good race. 
who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth. That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. It doesn't come from God. So what he's saying is, hey, stop. Take stock of your life. You're biting and devouring one another. There's a gospel issue at the heart of that. You were running a good race, and now you're full of fear. There's something about the way you're understanding God's love that's connected to that. Stop and think about it. Take stock of your life. Maybe ask some good friends to help you take stock of your life. What about the gospel? Well, let me just say one more thing. When, when we talk here about circumcision, what he's basically saying is it's about trusting in something. It doesn't matter if it's something else besides circumcision. You might be like, why does circumcision matter to people in the 21st century? It doesn't have religious significance. That's true for, for the most of us. But you need to understand what Paul's saying is if you feel like you have to do something that God says you don't have to do, then all of a sudden it's become an idol. It's become a Jesus in your life. If you think you have to do something that God doesn't say you have to do for God to love you, then, then you're, you're really in deep weeds. And once you go down this road, you're going to have to stand before God with what you've done. But what about the gospel, the good news? Here, here's the thing I want you to see tonight. The good news that real Christianity teaches is that, the, that Christianity isn't just teaching us something. I know that's a little paradoxical. Let, let me explain. What Christianity teaches is that Christianity doesn't just teach us something. It doesn't just give us pious advice. Christianity says you can have a whole new hope. Not just new information. A whole new hope. A whole new reliance. It changes what we hope in. It changes what we rely on. And it changes what we worship. Now, Paul says this in verse 5 when he says, For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. And I said this last week, but I'll say it again. When the Bible talks about hope, it's not a vague kind of optimism. It's a sure thing. Hope in the Bible is always confidence that God will do what he says. Now, that's very different than the way we use the word hope. But hope means this can be counted on. And Paul's saying the way we live now is to eagerly await the hope of righteousness. Now, what is that righteousness means being beautiful in God's sight. And Paul says we, it's such a sure thing if you're in a relationship with God through Christ because he lived and died in our place, as we sang in that last hymn, if that's your trust, then your future is secure it's so secure that you can actually begin to enjoy it now. Eagerly awaiting means enjoying by anticipation because it's so solid and secure. It's like anticipating an amazing meal. Maybe the calf. <laughs> now, it's anticipating an amazing meal and literally your mouth starts watering. Have you ever had that experience? 
I have that a lot. Every time I think about a city that I've been to, I start thinking about, oh, where do I want to eat? And, and, I, and I literally, my mouth will start watering. I think about St. Louis. I think I want to go to Lion's Choice, you know? There's, there's places maybe for you, but that's what Paul's talking about. What if the gospel was the kind of thing that you're like, you know, one day I'm going to be so beautiful, so radiant, that I can actually begin to smile right now as I think about it. That's what he's talking about. Eagerly anticipating the righteousness for which we hope, for which we know is coming. That's what we're living in. That's how we live. That's why that that hymn, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I stake my whole eternity. I thought that was a Spurgeon quote forever, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher. And then I found which I've found many times, actually, that Spurgeon quotes are really him quoting other people. But one of my favorite Spurgeon quotes, one of my favorite Spurgeon quotes is, he who never quotes is never quoted. So he kind of lived that out. Um, but then I found that this hymn, there's actually like 10 verses to that hymn. 10 verses to that hymn. I'll post it on our Facebook page so you can see it. And it's a communion hymn. There is something about communion where we actually have our senses engaged, where we are reminded that Christianity is not just about ideas in your head, but we feed on Christ by faith as we await the day when he will come and make all things right. That's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about this ongoing practice of focusing on the righteousness that has been secured by grace to develop more and more of a longing for it, more and more of a confidence that it's ours to begin to have it wet our appetite. And the reason that's important is because the only thing that can do battle with the sinful nature. See, here's the thing. The real heart of slavery in our lives is our commitment to ourselves. What Martin Luther called the inward curvature of the soul. And so often we think Christian freedom is about, well, how how far can I go on a date sexually or whether I can drink or not drink. And really, the heart of Christian freedom is, can you be turned away from the inward curvature of the soul out towards other people to love them? That God's grace comes in and so secures your future that you don't have to try to get all of your joy here and now. That's what it does. And the only thing that can begin to melt your heart is knowing that Jesus gave up perfect freedom. Let himself be bound and hung on a cross when he had the right and the power to call down legions of angels and end the injustice. And he didn't do it. And we meditate on the security that that brings that he saved us, not because of anything we could bring. We contribute sin and unbelief, and we get perfect joy and freedom. Tim Keller says it this way, imagine how you would feel if a person asked to marry you, but then you came to realize that they only wanted you if you came with an inheritance. That wouldn't sit very well. Jesus doesn't marry you for any other reason that he loves you. 
He already has everything. There's nothing you can contribute to him except sin and unbelief. And he says, bring it to me. Give it to me. This is true freedom. To be set free from our guilt and fear and released to love God and others. And then you begin to understand that Paul's command to love in verse 14, it's not a restriction on our freedom. In reality, it's the path of freedom because our greatest slavery is our slavery to ourselves and to actually live in freedom takes practice, indulgence, hatred, selfishness. Those are all about slavery, service, love, forgiveness. That's the life of freedom. And so often our boasts of freedom are just that, boasts without the reality. I love this by Eugene Peterson, the guy who wrote the message. He says, freedom is not a thing in itself complete. It is an opportunity. Freedom is to the Christian what a brisk breeze is to a sailor. It makes the day worthwhile and exciting, but it also requires vigilant and alert decisions at sail and rudder. True freedom needs purpose and direction or we simply become enslaved again. Freedom is not about spontaneously doing whatever you like. And it's one of the great ways that the world, especially the consumer culture, has lied to us. You know those horrible um, Visa card commercials, you know, where all the important experiences in life uh, can only happen spontaneously, so you have to have a credit card, right? <laughs> like, we don't believe that true love can be intentional and planned out and thought out. And then we wonder, like, why our relationship with God seems so empty most of the time, because we're just hoping that we can just live on our feelings and hope that our feelings will always be right. No, Freedom requires diligence, requires dying to self, requires so focusing on the love of God and the future beauty that is ours so that we can then not be so focused on ourselves and care for other people and live in freedom. Don't use your freedom to indulge. That shows that you're not really free. You're still focused on yourself. One more quote from uh, Eugene Peterson. He says, love is a deliberate act. We walk. It's not floating on a fluffy cloud. It's not the sudden acquisition of wings. It's not early retirement to an armchair in paradise. We walk. We use feet on the ground things like intelligence and wisdom, scripture and tradition. If we do not engage in this deliberate, directed action, we are subject to pressures, inner and outer, that re-enslave us. Without plan, without direction, without purpose, we simply trade slaveries. It happens often. My wife reminded me of this. Isn't this what Elsa discovered? Right? Going from fear to selfish isolation, the myth of safety, only brought a new kind of slavery. No matter how much she boasted that the cold never bothered her anyway, it certainly did. I think C.S. Lewis understood it well. It's one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. Maybe you've heard this. He says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And you can only love in that way when you're secure in the love of God. 
One of the old Puritans used to say that he who rides on his way to be crowned thinks little of rain along the way. It's about perspective sometimes. Now next week I'm going to pick up on this living by the Spirit and being led by the Spirit. I think this, this last verse is one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. It has nothing to do with God telling you what you should major in or where you should live or who you should marry. It's not at all what it means to be led by the Spirit. It actually has to do with fighting against a sinful nature. But if you want to hear that, you're going to have to come back next week.